Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. We are absolutely privileged today to be joined by cardiology fellows from the Medical College of Wisconsin. I'd like to invite Drs. Kate Cohen, David Lewandowski, and Dev Mohanani to introduce yourselves. Guys, welcome to the show. Tell us who you are. Thanks so much, Dane and Amit. It is great to be here. My name is David Lewandowski, and I'm a third-year cardiology fellow here at MCW, pursuing an imaging fellowship, focusing in echo and structural imaging for next year. And I absolutely love it here in Milwaukee. I have a number of hobbies here. I enjoy playing all sorts of different kinds of sports, like cooking a lot, reading, and I even did a little bit of dancing, specifically West Coast dancing, before the pandemic shuffled things around a little bit. Hi, I'm Div. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, going into advanced cardiac imaging here at the Medical College next year. I grew up in India, primarily in New Delhi, uh, moved to Chicago for residency, and ended up at the Medical College for fellowship. I'm not as gifted a performer as Dave. My hobbies include reading fiction and nonfiction. I'm reading a book called The Clockmaker's Daughter right now, which brings out kind of like the childish side in me. It's it's partly a murder mystery, partly a ghost story. Dave, I will have you know that these hips do not lie. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to bring the nerds to cardio nerds, right? That's got to be me. Yeah, we welcome that, 100%. (laughs) Kate, did you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kate. I'm one of the first-year cardiology fellows. I think ultimately I'm interested in some sort of hybrid career. Uh, I'm currently on an R38 NIH grant, and so a lot of my time this year and last year has been actually doing basic research. So I'm hoping that someday in the future I'll get to combine clinical practice with research as well. In terms of hobbies, I have an eight-month-old son who I adore and spend as much time with as I can. And otherwise, I'm actually a daily New York Times crossword computer. 
Wow, that is quite the feat. And I, I don't know what's more impressive. You know, you, as a first year fellow, you're juggling being a mother to an eight month old. You know, I'm a father to a three year old, and I definitely understand the balance required with that. You're also doing basic science research and you complete daily crossword puzzles. I honestly don't know which you'd be more impressed by, but colored me impressed. Thank you so much for being here and introducing yourself, guys. I'd also like to give a big shout out to Sudi Tiagi and David Soma, who are also our co-fellows who put just as much work, if not more, into this project than we did. They couldn't make it here today, but props to them. I think you'd said that they couldn't make it here because there was a cath lab activation and they're taking care of patients. So we fully endorse patient care. It's a part of being a fellow at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So go college. Woo! Div, Dave, Kate, this is such a treat to have you come on our show. Amit and I were thinking about ideas of how we would do this Cases Across America series. The only thing that came to mind was Aladdin and a magic carpet ride. I may have sung to uh, Amit and I said, I can show you the world. So that's what we're doing right now. I've picked up Amit. We're on our magic carpet. It's a beautiful carpet with great frills. And I've picked him up from Cleveland. I left for Baltimore. We are now cruising through Milwaukee and we've picked you guys up. It's a very large carpet, I assure you. Uh, but direct, <laughs> why don't you guys direct us to your favorite location in Milwaukee where we could set up shop and talk about this amazing, fascinating case of cardiology that will be an inspiration to us all. Wait, can I be Aladdin? He was my favorite Disney character growing up. Yeah, if I could be the genie. Oh, okay. All right. Let us take you guys to the Sound Shore Beer Garden here in Milwaukee because the city is known for its beer and the beauty of the lake. And let's get started. I'm at the lake is pretty crystal clear. It's beautiful and shining. Okay, very good. This is perfect. Are we thinking lager or we're thinking more of a lighter ale just to help me complete that picture? I'm a lighter ale kind of guy. I know Dave likes his dive bars. Dave, you want to tell them what kind of beer you like? I'll have a lager. We'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> All right. Picture's complete. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's get started with this amazing case. Okay, so we got the picture. We're enjoying awesome homegrown beer, and uh, we're sitting by the lake. It's crystal clear and pristine. There's a sunset in the background. Let's talk about what we love talking about in this setting, cardiology. What do you guys have for us? We have an awesome case for you. Our patient is a 32-year-old G2P1 female at 29 weeks gestation with a history of palpitations who presented after a witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. While at work, she lost consciousness and was found to be pulseless. She received six rounds of immediate bystander CPR and three shocks before Ross was achieved. She was transferred to an outside hospital where she was intubated but remained hypoxic to 87% on 100% FiO2 with aid of PEEP. She was also hypotensive to the 70s over 50s despite getting IV fluids and pressors. And an outside hospital chest x-ray showed diffuse bilateral pulmonary edema. That outside hospital initiated a shock team conference call with our institution, who during that conference call was decided that the patient would be transferred to us for a higher level of care. Her past medical history was significant for one previous normal healthy pregnancy. In terms of surgical history, she had had a previous knee surgery. She had no allergies and was taking a prenatal vitamin in terms of medications. Her family history was pertinent for maternal uncles with sudden cardiac death and a paternal first cousin with a by the ICD for a long QT syndrome. However, the culprit gene was found through genetic testing to be through the non-related side of the family. She was married, drank alcohol rarely, was a non-smoker, and had no history of illicit substance use. You know, we're dealing with an otherwise uh, healthy young woman 
uh, who is at 29 weeks of gestation. She's G2P1. So I'm just thinking, you know, like my, my wife is pregnant right now. I'm just thinking what's going on in the social circumstance and uh, the family situation. You know, she's presumably got a partner. Uh, she's got, uh, she's G2P1. So she's had one successful pregnancy in the past. So she's got a child who's also involved. She suffers this completely unanticipated life-threatening event with a cardiac arrest. I'm so thankful she received bystander CPR, but you know, if this were in the hospital, we would think, do we actually do an emergent bedside cesarean delivery, I think classically within four minutes or at four minutes from starting CPR? But all the medical stuff aside, the social context here is extremely sobering, very serious, uh, and very gut-wrenching in so many ways. We'll see how this case unfolds as we go forward, but I think just uh, thinking about the context there I've, you know, I'm sitting at the edge of my chair. I really hope we can help her. Absolutely. And I hope that I'll be able to sort of make the point later on that there was an incredibly deliberate amount of decision-making made in this case. Not that there ever isn't, but there was also a very strong multidisciplinary component um, to try and get her and her child the best care possible and the best outcomes possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it really highlights what our OB colleagues go through. I mean, this is like their day-to-day. It's quite incredible what they do. And um, when this crosses over into cardiology, we get to appreciate what they do. Her initial outside hospital vitals, uh, her temperature was 96.3. Her blood pressure was 76 over 53. Her heart rate was 61. She had a respiratory rate of 24. And she was saturating 87% on 100% FiO2 with a PEEP of 8 she was intubated and sedated on exam. She was tachycardic with a regular rhythm, normal S1 and S2, and no appreciable murmurs. Her lungs were coarse bilaterally on the ventilator. She had a soft, gravid, non-tender abdomen with positive bowel sounds. And her extremities were cool with a sluggish capillary refill, but no edema was noted. Her labs were largely unremarkable, though they were pertinent for an AST of 200 and ALT of 157. She had a mild leukocytosis to 14.6. She had a lactic acid of 4.3, a troponin of 0.04, which later rose to 0.074, and a BNP of 4,087. There was an outside hospital chest x-ray taken, which will ultimately be available on the CardioNerds blog, but it showed extensive consolidative changes throughout the lungs that were compatible with severe bilateral pulmonary edema. EKG showed a wide complex tachycardia, though our first hospital EKG showed normal sinus rhythm with occasional PDCs. There were no ST elevations or other signs of ischemia. We have on our hands a young woman who suffered a terrible cardiac arrest with minimal past medical history. She comes into the hospital, is hypoxemic despite being intubated and on high FiO2, high PEEP, and she is transferred to our institution for higher level of care. Basically, we have a high-risk situation here. This patient is very sick, and we're going to dive in now into trying to figure out the first initial steps to take and how to address a patient like this post-arrest. So this is a challenging case, and the fact that she is pregnant has significant implications to her care. Unfortunately, each year in the U.S., 700 women die and 50,000 experience life-threatening complications with pregnancy and childbirth. 25 to 30% of this is related to a cardiac etiology, and one-third is related to cardiomyopathy. It certainly seems like this patient is experiencing acute cardiac event based on her VT arrest and pulmonary edema. It can be surprisingly tricky to identify cardiogenic shock in a pregnant patient as there's a lot of overlapping symptoms, including dyspnea on exertion, leg swelling, dizziness, and palpitations. So things that I like to watch out for to look if a patient is in cardiogenic shock or decompensated heart failure include altered mentation, hypotension, 
decreased urine output, difficulty oxygenating, elevated lactate, or cold extremities on exam. Basically signs of decreased perfusion, similar to any patient with suspected cardiogenic shock. Although we were pretty confident that this patient is in acute decompensated heart failure, it's important that we maintain a wide differential. I like to break down the differential of cardiac arrest in pregnant patients like this. One, there could be unmasking of a previously undiagnosed cardiac condition, typically presenting around the second trimester. This could entail valvular disease, particularly left-sided valvular stenoses, cardiomyopathies, or really any other congenital abnormality. There could even be acute cardiac insults such as pulmonary embolism, amniotic fluid embolism, or acute MI, particularly spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which is much more common in the pregnant population compared to the general population. Also, there's preeclampsia or peripartum cardiomyopathy, typically presenting later in the third trimester to post-delivery. So why is pregnancy so stressful on the heart? We should take a look at the physiology. During pregnancy, cardiac output increases by up to 50%. This is to meet fetal and uterine needs, initially accomplished through increases in stroke volume, but then later heart rate. Post-delivery, there's relief of IVC obstruction from the uterus and a substantial acute rise in preload. Peripheral vascular resistance drops progressively throughout pregnancy and returns to pre-pregnancy levels within two weeks of delivery. All of this together creates a high-stress environment for the heart that sets it up, if it's already weakened, to potentially fail. Lastly, I think that we should discuss how to manage your cardiac arrest. In general, ACLS should be followed, just like in the general population. There is pretty low impact of cardioversion or defibrillation on the fetus, so that should not be deferred if necessary. In contrast, most antiarrhythmia agents are problematic for the fetus. Most are class C, with sodalol graded at class B and amiodarone graded all the way down at class D. For patients with refractory arrhythmias, the risks and benefits of these antiarrhythmic medications, particularly amiodarone, should be applied. Targeted temperature management is a complicated situation with differing opinions on its safety for the fetus and should involve taking into account the gestational age and viability. If targeted temperature management is considered, it should be a multidisciplinary discussion with close fetal monitoring. Another question frequently asked is, should we pursue immediate coronary angiography to evaluate for acute coronary syndrome? Now, if there's ST segment elevation in the post-arrest ECG, it's commonly accepted that the patient should undergo cath as long as they are hemodynamically stable. If there's no ST segment elevation, there's less enthusiasm for immediate catheterization. Studies in the general population have not shown benefits to immediate catheterization The incidence of CAD in the pregnant population is likely even lower. In people's minds, initially and appropriately, I think, go to radiation. Radiation exposure to the fetus can be minimized through shielding and standard ALARA principles. While the teratogenicity risk is overall low, there is no data regarding the long-term development of the child. Even more concerning, however, may be the risk of iatrogenic vascular dissection with catheterization. There are several theories for why there's an increased risk of dissection in pregnancy, one of which being that increased progesterone may lead to biochemical structural changes in the vessel wall. For these reasons, cardiac catheterization should be approached cautiously. David, that was outstanding. Just really, really phenomenal. I love how you uh, overlay cardiac arrest on pregnancy, which helped you shift around your differential diagnosis. When we have this patient who's clearly had a cardiac arrest, which was initially shockable, but now we're in a situation with cardiogenic shock, 
the way you presented your differential was just absolutely elegant and beautiful. But tying it into a Cardio Nerds episode that we did on heart failure, where we talked about the five failures of heart failure, and that was more in the chronic heart failure situation. But the five failures really also apply to the acute situation to help you localize where in the heart you're having this issue. Is it going to be a pump failure? Like, is the myocardium involved? Is it going to be valvular failure, a coronary failure, a pericardial failure? or electrical failure, thinking about those different aspects of the heart can help us pinpoint the particular etiology for this patient's ongoing cardiogenic shock picture. Yeah, that's a really great point, Dan. And I've got a couple of comments to add just from the clinical reasoning perspective. When we first started talking about cardiac arrest and bilateral pulmonary infiltrates with hypoxemia, I'm thinking, is this non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema or cardiogenic pulmonary edema? But the fact that she had a shockable rhythm and continued to have paroxysms of white complex tachyarrhythmias definitely makes me more concerned about the heart in this context as a primary driver for this pulmonary edema. So I'm thinking about causes of cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And then the second question that's lingering in my mind is, you know, like just stepping back for all the reasons that David highlighted, pregnancy is such a hemodynamic stress on the system, right? You've got increasing cardiac output, decreasing SVR, increasing plasma volume, and all these things sort of amplify over the course of pregnancy. And so is this patient somebody who's had a subclinical cardiovascular disease that is now being manifest because of the superimposed hemodynamic stress of pregnancy? She's failing the stress test. Or is this entirely new acute phenomenon that developed within the context of pregnancy, either like an ischemic hit from SCAD or a cardiomyopathy or arrhythmia or whatever else. So essentially, is this a pre-existing condition that is now being manifest in the stress or is this a new problem? And I think right now we have to save her life and do the acute things to manage her, but also start thinking about how do we put this picture together? So one of the ways that we started to put this picture together was continuing on with some diagnostic testing. So when she arrived at our facility, um, an initial echo showed that she had an EF about 10 to 20%. She had globally decreased function. There were no regional wall motion abnormalities. She had normal valves. Continuing on with our patient's clinical course, on day one, the shock team discussion continued with the decision to place the patient on central ECMO. There were several services involved in this conversation, including cardiology, interventional cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, anesthesia critical care, OBGYN, maternal fetal medicine, and our high-risk obstetrical anesthesia group. Not only were all these services involved in her initial management, but continued to be involved in many cases in her care throughout the rest of her hospitalization. During the course of her ECMO cannulation, fetal distress was noted with decelerations down to as low as the 80s for prolonged periods of up to 30 seconds or so. And as a result, the OBGYN team, um, as well as maternal fetal medicine, decided to go ahead and deliver the patient by emergency C-section. The infant was then taken to the NICU for further cares, and our patient was started on continuous dobutamine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin. So after delivery, the patient was taken to the cath lab for left heart catheterization, where she was found to have non-obstructive normal coronary arteries, though with some slow flow likely related to her low cardiac output and possible spasm probably related to the pressors. Thank you, Kate, for that great overview of the diagnostics and the update on the patient. So at this point, we have emergently managed this patient. Now it's time to really dig down and figure out what caused her heart failure and subsequent cardiogenic shock. This is a young lady, no prior history of cardiomyopathy, prior healthy pregnancy, as Amit pointed out, no pre-existing hypertension, no family history of cardiomyopathy, no history of alcohol or drug use, 
We did an angiogram at our institution and did not find any significant obstructive coronary artery disease. So for all practical purposes, she fits the contemporary definition of a cardiomyopathy, which is a structurally and functionally abnormal myocardium in the absence of significant CAD, valvular disease, or congenital disease. There are several forms of cardiomyopathy, dilated, restrictive, hypertrophic. We ruled these out by the echo findings and the extensive negative infectious and metabolic workup done here. We did entertain briefly the possibility that this was Takasubo or stress-induced cardiomyopathy. However, our patient had global dysfunction, as Kate pointed out, and lacked a classic trigger for Takasubo, making it unlikely that we are dealing with with a situation where this is stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Another consideration given the ventricular tachycardia was, is this arrhythmogenic? Uh, But after careful discussion, we believe that the VT was actually a result of the cardiomyopathy rather than the etiology for the systolic dysfunction. Based on an exclusion of an exhaustive list of differential diagnoses, we concluded that our patient has peripartum cardiomyopathy. So what is peripartum cardiomyopathy? This is an idiopathic disease presenting with LV systolic dysfunction towards the end of pregnancy or in the months following delivery. It occurs in about 1 in 1,000 to 4,000 deliveries in the United States African-American race, preeclampsia, hypertension, older maternal age, multigestational pregnancies are all risk factors for this disease. While it's not very clear what causes peripartum cardiomyopathy, it's postulated that the vascular stress and hormonal change in pregnancy may be responsible. Mice models implicate the 16-kilodalton fragment of prolactin, which has been found to have vasculotoxic and proapoptotic properties. It's also said that genetics may contribute here, providing a first hit and predisposing patients to developing cardiomyopathy with pregnancy acting as sort of a second hit um, to lead to phenotypic manifestation of this disease. Another thing I would like to take this opportunity to point out is that it's important to differentiate pregnancy-associated symptoms with those of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Out-of-proportion leg edema, RALS, a tender liver edge, S3, a murmur of mitral regurg should all prompt further investigation. A BNP in this scenario can be particularly useful as a study has shown that a value below cutoff can have a 100% negative predictive value for adverse outcomes during pregnancy. So at this point, we have reached a diagnosis. We have done an exhaustive list of workup. What next? Timing and mode of delivery are very important considerations. We encourage that a multidisciplinary approach, as in our case, involving obstetrics, cardiology, maternal fetal medicine, should be utilized to make the best decision for every patient. Hemodynamic instability, despite appropriate medical therapy, including mechanical circulatory support, as in our patient, should prompt early delivery. In stable patients, normal vaginal delivery should be attempted unless there is an obstetric reason for a C-section. So as Kate pointed out, our patient underwent emergent C-section after fetal distress was noted during the ECMO cannulation, and fortunately for us, gave birth to a healthy baby girl. That's fantastic, and kudos to the team, because you know when this patient came in, we didn't have one patient, but we had two. And thankfully, with the extraordinary efforts of a multidisciplinary team and advanced cardiac critical care with mechanical circulatory support, we were able to deliver a healthy, premature baby who's under terrific care of neonatology. Shout out to them. My wife, my wife is a NICU fellow, so she does this day in and day out. So I really uh, applaud the work they do. 
But coming back to our patient, we are still in a dire situation where we have acute cardiogenic shock with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The EF is in the gutter. She's on ECMO with tremendous afterload. She already has pulmonary edema. What are the next steps in the management here? So we'll, we'll pick up our patient's clinical course on day two. She ultimately had an impella placed as an LV vent and then underwent an endomyocardial biopsy as well as the initiation of empiric IV steroids for concerns about a possible giant cell myocarditis. That endomyocardial biopsy ultimately ruled out giant cell myocarditis. On day two, she was also evaluated for a heart transplant and was noted to have decreasing vasopressor and inotrope requirements that day. The next day on day three, she was actually completely weaned off of pressors and inotropes, and she underwent a significant autodiuresis on ECMO and her impellate support. By the time day four rolled around, her EF had improved on ECHO up to about 25%, and this, in conjunction with improving hemodynamic data, allowed the impella to be removed. Thanks for that, Kate. We're really glad and relieved to have a great outcome here. Let's talk a little bit about some of the nuances in the care of these patients, starting with the first and biggest decision that needs to be made immediately after delivery, which is breastfeeding. Breastfeeding poses a theoretical risk to worsening of cardiomyopathy, given the prolactin hypothesis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And in fact, early guidelines recommended against this. However, in areas where sanitation and access to formula is not available, not breastfeeding may pose a significant risk to the infant. Also, more recent data seem to suggest that breastfeeding is safe and not associated with adverse outcomes. One of the largest reports on this topic comes from the IPAC, or the Investigations of Pregnancy-Associated Cardiomyopathy Study, which prospectively followed 100 women after the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Data from this cohort did not show any association of breastfeeding with poorer recovery. However, there were only 15 patients out of the 100 included in the study who were actually breastfeeding, and therefore the study is plagued by a small sample size and also significant selection bias, wherein it's possible that the less sick women were the ones who were breastfeeding and therefore biased the outcomes towards the null. Given the lack of data, there is significant regional variation in recommendations. At our center in particular, breastfeeding is encouraged after a careful discussion of potential risks and benefits with the patient. So what about guideline-directed medical therapy? My advice on this topic is simple. Patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy should be started on guideline-directed medical therapy. Diuretics, beta blockers, hydralazine nitrates, and DIGH are relatively safe in pregnancy and during lactation and should be initiated with careful monitoring to avoid side effects. It's important to avoid overdiuresis, though, which can obviously lead to decreased placental perfusion prenatally and decreased milk production later on. Beta blockers have been known to be associated with intrauterine growth restriction and fetal bradycardia, so it should be used with caution, but should still be used. Importantly, hydralazine and nitrates are useful before birth, as we all know ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and by extension ARNIs, are contraindicated given their potential for teratogenicity. Aldosterone antagonists are avoided in pregnancy but can be initiated while breastfeeding. While ACE inhibitors, in specific captopril and enalapril, can be used while breastfeeding, data on ARNI is still scant and it has been shown to be excreted in milk in animal studies, so we still don't know what the verdict is on that one. Another thing to consider is anticoagulation. So peripartum cardiomyopathy and pregnancy in general is a prothrombotic state. Uh, Although it's not a very strong recommendation, but it has been recommended that patients with severely depressed ejection fraction during late pregnancy and six to eight weeks postpartum should receive anticoagulation. 
A threshold of ejection fraction less than 30% is suggested by the American Heart, whereas the European Society suggests a threshold of below 35%. What can be used to anticoagulate these patients? Warfarin crosses the placenta and should be avoided during pregnancy, and instead low molecular weight heparin can be used. One medication that's created a lot of controversy over the years is bromocryptine. Bromocryptine is a dopamine agonist and inhibits the release of prolactin. While several small studies from Africa and Europe have suggested benefit, data are limited by small sample sizes and lack of appropriate control groups. It is also important to note that bromocryptine is associated with a high rate of thrombotic events, including stroke and myocardial infarction. And we talked about how peripartum cardiomyopathy and pregnancy in general are prothrombotic states to begin with. Therefore, patients should be on anticoagulation if a decision is made to use bromocryptine. Its use in the United States remains driven by regional practices given the controversial data available to us. Additionally, the implication of not being able to breastfeed needs to be carefully discussed with the patient. So to sum up, give your patient's guideline-directed medical therapy, discuss breastfeeding, anticoagulation, and bromocryptine with them. This is a perfect opportunity for some shared decision-making. Wow, Div. That was an incredible whirlwind tour of peripartic pomiopathy, really from nuts to bolts. I mean, you can't get more comprehensive than that and really appreciate that. I just wanted to circle back to some things that we discussed in terms of the mechanical support and particularly with this patient who's pregnant and on ECMO. And if anyone wants more of a deep dive on left ventricular unloading or inventing, we talked a little bit about this in episode 45 and episode 31. But Kate, you mentioned that in day two, an impella was placed as an LV vent or an LV unload. Was there something that prompted that move or was it something that you typically do at your center? I would love to jump on this question and kind of cover cardiogenic shock in the pregnant patient a little bit deeper here. So thanks for the opportunity. So I'll start with right heart catheterization. While it's not necessarily indicated in all comers with peripartum cardiomyopathy, here it provided invaluable hemodynamic data in this particularly sick individual, and it helped guide our therapy. Similarly, the myocardial biopsy not routinely indicated, but given our patient's precipitous deterioration and arrhythmias, the biopsy was performed to rule out other forms of cardiomyopathy that would have changed management, such as giant cell myocarditis. The two main categories of therapy and cardiogenic shock include medical therapy and mechanical circulatory support. Medical therapy encompasses inotropic agents such as milrinone or dobutamine. In terms of vasodilatory therapy to reduce afterload, nitroglycerin is usually preferred over nitroprusside as actually mouse models have demonstrated increased levels of fetal cyanide in pregnant mice exposed to nitroprusside. Diuretics are a cornerstone in the treatment of any congestive heart failure. Overdiuresis could lead to decreased placental blood flow, but diuretics has never been associated with adverse outcomes in peripartum cardiomyopathy. Now, mechanical circulatory support is particularly attractive in this patient population as these women are often bridged to recovery or bridged to transplant. One retrospective database analysis of 53 million peripartum hospitalizations in the U.S. demonstrated that patients who received early mechanical circulatory support defined as less than six days from the onset of shock actually had improved outcomes compared to those who had therapy instituted later. One thing to watch out for, however, is that support device thrombosis due to the increased risk of thrombosis in peripartum cardiomyopathy. Short-term MCS devices include ECMO, Impella, and the intraortic balloon pump. ECMO is used frequently at our institution as it provides biventricular support and you can attach an oxygenator for patients who have persistent hypoxemia. 
It doesn't decrease LVEDP though. And that's why an impella was implanted in our patient as well to provide that LV venting and facilitate recovery. A dilated heart does not have good structural contractility. So if you can shrink that down, that'll help improve the mechanics of contractility and maybe help them get off of their support faster. If the impella is used as standalone therapy, just remember that one-third of patients with peripartum can have RV dysfunction, which can become problematic if there's no RV support device. At this point, I'd like to hand it back to Kate to talk a little bit about the rest of the hospital course and some of that goal-directed medical therapy that Div was talking about earlier. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. In many ways, the remainder of our patients' hospital course really highlights what you and also Div previously have talked about. So goal-directed medical therapy was discussed with our patient after she was decannulated from ECMO, which was on day five of her hospitalization. Initially, the patient was hesitant about starting many of these medications because of her desire to breastfeed. However, after further discussions, she was amenable to starting, and on days 8 through 11, she began Capricril, low-dose metoprolol succinate, and spironolactone. Both her VAD and her heart transplant evaluations were deferred because of how much recovery she'd already experienced. On day 14, she had had a subcutaneous ICD placed for secondary prevention, and on day 16, she was discharged home. Over the course of the next year, this patient did undergo two separate PVC ablations. Her LV ejection fraction returned to normal, and very happily, she is the mom of a healthy baby girl. Kate, I am so happy that this was a great outcome for mom and baby here. Good work for the entire team caring for this complicated patient, and kudos to you for dealing with some tough stuff overnight. It's important not to rest on our laurels, though, however, as this patient will require long-term care for her peripartum cardiomyopathy. Patients with peripartum in general have worse outcomes the lower their left ventricular ejection fraction is at presentation with higher adverse events and less likelihood of recovery. Other factors to take into account include LV dilation, the presence of LV thrombus, RV dysfunction, and if the patient is obese or of African-American descent, these have both been correlated with adverse outcomes as well. Some have attempted to utilize imaging modalities to help try and prognosticate, including echo-derived global longitudinal strain, which has been shown to correlate positively with good clinical outcomes. Cardiac MRI is also used with a high degree of late gadolinium enhancement, as well as high extracellular volume associated with lower odds of recovery. Remember, though, that gadolinium crosses the placenta and is considered class C for pregnant patients if being considered pre-delivery. For subsequent pregnancies, that's another kettle of fish. Two camps we really have here, the recovered and the non-recovered ejection fraction patients, both of which incur a risk of relapse with a subsequent pregnancy. However, with the recovered ejection fraction patients, it's a one in five risk, and the patients with a non-recovered ejection fraction have a 50% chance of relapse with a subsequent pregnancy. And typically, these are more severe the second time around, which is kind of scary. All patients, thus, should have preconception planning. The risks of a repeat pregnancy should be highlighted in patients with non-recovered ejection fractions in particular. Continued use of that good medical therapy, as Div indicated, and close monitoring throughout pregnancy is important with repeat echocardiography, repeat labs, particularly that BNP. It's important with frequency dependent on the individualized level of risk. During delivery, you need that multidisciplinary team, including maternal fetal medicine and cardiology working together. Vaginal delivery is still preferred if able, but you're going to need to monitor very closely pre and post delivery. One more thing I'd like to talk about is implantable cardioverter defibrillators. 
there's pretty limited data regarding their use in primary prevention of sudden cardiac death in peripartum patients. It's a high incidence of ventricular arrhythmias as highlighted by our patient, but at the same time, they're more likely to experience recovery of their LV function than other forms of cardiomyopathy, which creates this kind of contrast. This has led to some interest in wearable cardioverted defibrillators. That being said, some studies have observed an increased risk of sudden cardiac death during and post-recovery of ejection fraction. So overall, you can gather that this is a pretty murky area. And the current recommendation is to follow guidelines for primary prevention in the general population. Our patient experienced a presumed VTVF due to a shockable rhythm, and so she actually falls into the category of secondary prevention. Therefore, she did receive a subcutaneous ICD. Team, Viv, David, and Kate, congratulations for taking such tremendous care of this patient. She came in essentially crashing and burning, advanced mechanical circulatory support in a dire situation that had an emergent cesarean section. It was such a valiant effort on the part of the entire team. Uh, with a capital E, that brought her to a point where she could be discharged and a year later have a normal recovered LV ejection fraction and a beautiful, healthy baby girl. There's nothing better than that uh, to be able to not just perform great care, enjoy the education, but also end up with such a beautiful outcome. So I'd like to use this opportunity to ask each of you, what is it that inspired you to pursue cardiology and what makes your heart splutter about training at the Medical College of Wisconsin? So I'd like to say that cases like this are exactly why I went into cardiology. To have someone in such dire straits, such on the brink, and to be able to support them, not only just medical care, but also the psychosocial aspect of supporting people through one of the probably toughest times in their and their families' lives, and then to see them recover and be able to raise a family like she did is one of the biggest reasons I went into cardiology. I love the physiology. I love the procedural elements and everything, but that at its core is why I went to cardiology. And I think that Medical College of Wisconsin gives me the opportunity to care for patients like this. We have the resources, we have the personnel who are so willing and so available to help us out. When we're on call overnight, like one of my co-fellows had pointed out with the shock page, at the tip of my fingers, I can bring in experts in the field to help with the most complicated patients and help bring in the ability to support them. And at the same time, despite having these experts, we don't have egos here. I think I would say that we're pretty Midwest friendly and our intendings are universally great to get along with and so are my co-fellows. So those are some of my highlights. So I'm a MCW lifer. I did medical school and residency at MCW as well. So in terms of endorsements of the institution. I think that's pretty much as good as it gets. I liked it enough to stay forever, basically. (laughs) And for me, a lot of what Dave said in terms of why cardiology, but I think I'll add that this case also highlights another piece that for me is, I think, really exciting about cardiology, which is we have a lot of answers and we have a lot of sort of goal-directed medical therapy and known entities, but there's a lot still unknown and left to learn. Um, And particularly because of my interest in research, I think those unanswered questions allow for career-long continued learning that's really appealing to me. I think for me, if I were to answer why cardiology, it's it's the diversity that draws me towards cardiology, both academically and clinically, right from hemodynamics to procedures, invasive procedures, to multimodality imaging, which I'm going to pursue down the line. 
there's just so much to do and so much to learn and so many ways in which we can help our patients. On top of that, it just opens up very, very diverse areas where we can subspecialize in, which I think is unique to cardiology and cannot be matched by any other specialty. Why medical college? I've, I've uh, traveled quite a bit in my life. I've, I've moved nationally and internationally over the years. And I can tell you that this is one of the most collegial places where our attendings and us have no hierarchy. We text back and forth. We run things by each other at all points of time, regardless of what time in the day or night it is. As co-fellows, we are always making sure that everybody who's on call is comfortable we take care of each other and we, we lift each other up. And I think that's what makes MCW a very special place for me. Can you lift me up, Dave? I do lift you up every day, Dave. I, I definitely just, feel uplifted by, by everyone here. This has been an absolute crazy, amazing magic carpet ride. Even though I'm the genie, I feel like I got my three wishes granted with the three of you. This has just been an absolute pleasure. We really feel like we got a great glimpse of Milwaukee. The beer was great. I had both the lager and the uh, pale ale. And the shimmering lake was beautiful. And just giving us a glimpse at the collegiality within your program and that warmth really comes through in the chemistry between you all. So thank you so much. So glad that you had the time in your day to come join us. And you can bet once all this chaos is over, we're going to come and join you guys. Enjoy the lake. Uh, enjoy Milwaukee in real life. So I hope to see you all soon. Thank you guys for having us. One of the unique things about the Medical College of Wisconsin is that we work in a very multidisciplinary way to take care of our patients. Dave brought up the shock pager, but in addition to that, we have a cardiobstetrics clinic run by Dr. Thorson and Dr. Cohen, where these patients are referred often from smaller centers and are followed up longitudinally and get the care that they need. And Dr. Thorson's going to be one of our ECPR experts who's going to talk about pregnancy and related cardiac disease. Thanks, Emmett and Dan, and great job, Divyanchu, Sudi, Dave, and Kate for the presentation. Thanks for asking me to talk a little bit about peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is a disease process that affects typically younger and healthier patients than we're used to seeing in cardiology. So briefly, peripartum cardiomyopathy is a disease process that has a widely variable incidence. For countries like Nigeria and Haiti, anywhere from 1 in 100 to 1 in 300 births are complicated by this diagnosis. And in countries such as Japan, the incidence is much smaller at one in about 20,000. The United States is someplace in between those numbers, with incidence rates being reported from between one in 1,000 to one in 4,000. And as we know, it affects different populations differently. Its incidence is much higher in women of African-American descent and women who are older at the time of their pregnancies. Uh, a recent meta-analysis found that almost half of all peripartum cardiomyopathy cases occurred in women over 30 years of age during their index pregnancy. Other pathologies that are associated with peripartum cardiomyopathy include the spectrum of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So everything from gestational hypertension up to and including preeclampsia and eclampsia. Other risk factors, multigestation pregnancies, twins and triplets, and the emerging role of a genetic predisposition towards cardiomyopathies. The new information regarding a potential genetic predisposition towards peripartum cardiomyopathy 
which has been found in multiple family cohorts, has led to an interesting clinical question regarding the potential role of genetic testing in patients diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy. Right now, it's a fairly varied clinical practice with many experts in the field suggesting uh, the role of genetic testing in patients with a family history of dilated cardiomyopathies. In regards to the management of peripartum cardiomyopathy, it's very similar to patients with other etiologies of reduced ejection fraction and acute congestive heart failure. So during the acute phase of their presentation, acutely managing their loading conditions, including the preload and afterload, and management of their volume status. What's not often recognized is the frequency with which arrhythmias complicate the initial diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. A recent administrative-level data set found that almost 20% of incident peripartum cardiomyopathy hospitalizations are complicated by arrhythmia, um, with ventricular tachycardia being the most common arrhythmia. Another aspect to the management of peripartum cardiomyopathy is the need and correct population for anticoagulation in the setting of severe LV systolic dysfunction in the peripartum cardiomyopathy patient. It's well known that pregnancy in the immediate postpartum state are prothrombotic environments. And so there is concern that these patients may be at an increased risk for thrombosis. Different experts in the field and different guideline recommendations suggest a threshold of a left ventricular ejection fraction of 30 to 35% for the institution of anticoagulation. So that's where the commonalities between acute systolic heart failure due to other etiologies in peripartum cardiomyopathy end. And this is where we start talking about the things that are different. So as we all know, any of these recommendations for management have to be made in the context of uh, pregnancy or the potential for lactation. And so several of our commonly used neurohormonal therapies need to be either avoided in the pregnant state, such as angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, angiotensin-2 receptor blockers, angiotensin receptor nephrolysin inhibitors and mineral corticoid antagonists, and or uh, used with caution in the, in the period of lactation. The only two medications that are commonly used in the treatment of systolic congestive heart failure that there is not adequate data during the lactation period are um, secubitril, which is a nephrolysin inhibitor, and ibuprofen. The avoidance of certain medications, including commonly used medications such as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, neprilysin inhibitors, and mineral corticoid antagonists in pregnancy. This is where the commonalities between the treatment of acute systolic heart failure secondary to non-pregnancy-related causes and the treatment of patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy typically ends. We have to make all of our treatment decisions in the context of pregnancy or potential lactation, which includes avoidance of certain medications, which are contraindicated in pregnancy. Additionally, care should be given to the use of uh, certain medications, including neprilysin inhibitors and ibuprofen during lactation, as there's not sufficient data to support their use right now. The next factor that differs in the treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy is the time course with which it's recommended to consider uh, defibrillators for women with severe systolic dysfunction. 
Oftentimes, LD recovery occurs within the three to six month mark after diagnosis. However, recovery has been documented out to two years. And so most experts in the field recommend consideration of a wearable cardioverter defibrillator for women with relatively recent onset peripartum cardiomyopathy as a bridge to a more permanent device. So in terms of pathology-specific treatment, bromocryptine is a medication which inhibits the secretion of prolactin and has been studied in peripartum cardiomyopathy in several small studies. However, there are significant risks associated with the medication, including the risk of thrombosis, and the majority of the small studies lacked a control group. Right now, there isn't consensus in the field whether bromocryptine should be part of standardized treatment for peripartum cardiomyopathy, and there's a lot of recent work being done towards developing this evidence. Dr. McNamara is in the initial phases of the rebirth trial, which is a trial that will look at bromocryptine and outcomes in the treatment of acute peripartum cardiomyopathy. So the good news about peripartum cardiomyopathy is that it's associated with a much higher rate of recovery compared to other forms of reduced ejection fraction over several data sets. And most importantly, the only prospective data set we have, the IPAC trial, about 70 to 75% of women recover their ejection fraction at 12 months. So a much better rate of recovery compared to other cardiomyopathies. At Medical College of Wisconsin and Freighter, we have a specific clinic to take care of these patients called the Heart Disease and Pregnancy Clinic. It's a multi-specialty clinic, including cardiology, adult congenital cardiology, maternal fetal medicine, and OB anesthesia. We will see these patients either inpatient or outpatient, and oftentimes for the duration of their pregnancy and shortly thereafter. So the most common question I get from patients who have survived peripartum cardiomyopathy and are still within childbearing years is what is their chance of their subsequent pregnancy being affected? And unfortunately, there's not a breadth of data in this area. However, we do know that having survived peripartomyopathy confers a somewhat significant risk of relapse. Right now, we counsel women that if they have recovered their left ventricular ejection fraction, that they have a 20% risk of relapse with subsequent pregnancies. And women who have not recovered their ejection fraction have a 50% risk of further deterioration of their LV systolic function. So in closing, the specific advice that I give to my patients affected with peripartum cardiomyopathy is to stay hopeful. This is a, a disease process that has a relatively excellent rate of recovery, And ongoing science is working very hard to try and find further specific treatments. We'd like to turn it over to Dr. Nunzio Gaianello, who's going to provide a message as our program director and one of our favorite people in the hospital. I'm Nunzio Gaianello. I am the program director at the Medical College of Wisconsin. This is my second year uh, in charge of the program. I was an associate program director as I came out of fellowship training. Um, I am a advanced heart failure cardiologist by training and have taken a liking to definitely education and mentoring fellows. I have inherited a very uh, successful program and our fellows are very clinically driven and do a lot of good research. We have a program where is a night float structure and we have didactics essentially in every subspecialty. 
We offer subspecialty training in electrophysiology, advanced heart failure, interventional cardiology, and we also have a non-accredited echocardiography program as well. We currently have 17 general cardiology fellows, and we are looking to expand that to hopefully 18 as a full complement for six fellows per year. Our fellowship, my philosophy is ultimately that the fellowship should work for the fellows and that the fellows should work for the fellowship and the institution. And my, my goal is from day one is to put that fellow in a position to succeed um, and have discussions with them, get them in contact with people locally, nationally, et cetera, and really set them up and set up a plan to, to get success and move on to the next phase of their career. Because I think it's vital, A, that we all understand that cardiology fellowship is difficult, but with mentoring, guidance, et cetera, my goal is to Find this three years as the best three years of your life. And although it's, you know, can be a grind that, you know, that there are people looking out for you, mentors, et cetera, and really set you up to create, you know, research, be productive and kind of get you into a position of where you uh, want to go at the end of your, your fellowship. Our fellowship has currently four female fellows. We have prided ourselves at one point having essentially 30 plus percent of the fellowship being females. I think our faculty is roughly more than 30 percent female, and I think that's a strength and something that our leadership actively pursues. So that's kind of my two cents of the fellowship. The strengths or things that I'm most proud of, I, I preach teamwork. I think teamwork is vital in regards to developing a good morale and just collaboration in general. And so we are looking for fellows that are a great fit, have a great personality, and have strengths in regards to being people person and you know really able to work together. I think that's uh, a huge, huge strength and people that we look for when we're recruiting people to our fellowship. Milwaukee is a kind of a diamond in the rough type city. I think it has this blue-collar reputation, but I think it's a great place. It's livable. It's a large city, but it also doesn't have uh, a lot of the headaches, traffic, etc. It's a growing city. It's a diverse city. There's a lot to do. As most people probably don't know, that not during COVID eras, it is the city of festivals in the summertime. We have the largest summer outdoor festival in the United States uh, at Summerfest. Obviously, we have the Milwaukee Brewers, the Milwaukee Bucks, who just broke my heart. Um, I think it's a great place to live. And I think we have a great group of fellows that really get along with one another, uh, who really want to see each other succeed, and mentors that really want the best, obviously, like other academic programs to really put people into places to succeed. So I hope you guys are interested in interviewing here, and I hope I get to meet uh, quite a few of you during the interview trail, and I wish you all the best of luck. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team, 
for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.